Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we sit down with money manager, financial blogger, and overall well-rounded person, Colin Roach. Colin is the voice behind the popular investing blog, Pragmatic Capitalism, or PragCap for short, and also runs the asset management firm, Orkham Asset Management. In this conversation with Colin, we discuss the Federal Reserve, quantitative easing, their response during the great financial crisis and COVID, MMT, and much more. Thanks for listening, and help us out by leaving us a review or a comment. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Colin Roach. Colin, thank you for joining us today. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. You know, we were going to talk to you about the Federal Reserve and fiscal policy and MMT and a number of other economic topics. But after looking at your Twitter and Instagram accounts, I think we're going to pivot and actually have a podcast uh, around home improvement projects and stories from Home Depot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's perfect. Yeah, well, that's perfect. I can tell you all the mistakes you could possibly make during the process of building a home. Because in the last two years, I've probably literally made every single one of them along the way. What's the latest uh, project you're working on? Uh, Well, the, the house is actually finished we got final inspection done and um so we're, we're really finished with the the actual you know the main house and everything i'm like i'm building a grill outside which is you know i'm kind of doing fun stuff now and kind of the grill's kind of cool because it's kind of a culmination of all the kind of dumb skills i've learned that i'll probably never use again in my life um but you know it, it's framing masonry electrical siding um concrete you know countertops and uh, plumbing, electrical, all tied into one in this one little unit, which is kind of a, it's kind of a cool final thing to be doing just because it's, uh, it's kind of the summation of everything that I, I learned along the way here. So, so. That's great. Well, when you, you know, if you know how to do that stuff, you can save yourself a, a boatload of money. So um, it's pretty awesome to see. Yeah. And you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. <laughs> I've, I've learned one of the main things I've learned along the way is that, you know, I'm, I'm probably too much of a DIY guy in most aspects of my life. And I've learned along the way that there's just, there's so many things that you need to outsource in life and you're better off not trying to do a lot of this stuff on your own. So it's, it's nice to know how an electrical switch works, but I learned after getting shocked a few times, you know, electrical is something that you outsource to an expert. Yeah, anything I seem to touch around my house, I break. So I I kind of bow out of that home improvement type stuff. I'm not that handy, really. Yeah. But uh, you're a smart guy. So um, kind of getting into some of the stuff we wanted to talk to you about. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot going on with the economy right now. The markets, um, policymakers are in here making a lot of decisions that are going to have. Uh, in, that are having important implications and will have implications going forward. But maybe before we get into those things, we wanted to sort of just take a step back with you and talk about a little bit how we got here. So obviously the 2008 financial crisis caused a lot of damage and significant issues with our economy. And it also introduced um, some changes in how the Federal Reserve responds to shocks and downturns. So um, yeah. when the Fed began its, you know, its quantitative easing policies um, during the financial crisis, it seemed like most economists were convinced that that would trigger and lead to inflation. But you were actually one of the few people um, that were sort of saying that it wouldn't. And you, know, you were offering up some explanations why. So I thought maybe to start, you could just give us an overview of actually what quantitative easing is. And then you know, in your mind, why it actually hasn't been inflationary. Sure. Yeah. So I kind of went through, you know, in 2007, 2008, I went through the same evolution of thought that probably a lot of people are going through right now, especially younger people um, who are experiencing something like this for the first time. I was actually running a stock picking event driven strategy back then. And in about 
early Q1, Q2, 2008, my strategy completely stopped working. And it was because of all these big macro trends. And I kind of started to realize the more I talked to people and the more I was looking at the macro environment, I felt like if I didn't understand this wave of policy that was coming at the economy, that because it just dominated everything, because it was just so colossal, I felt like these micro strategies that a lot of us were running back then, they just wouldn't work because all the correlations went to one. And no matter what you did, you couldn't fight the Fed and these big trends. And so one of the big things that I was focused on was understanding Federal Reserve policy back then. And I was sort of fortunate in that I had a number of good connections in Japan, mainly at Nomura and people who had been through the Bank of Japan's iterations of these policies back in the, the early 2000s. And they kind of walked me through all of the accounting and, you know, I'm a, I'm a more of a, a, an accounting nerd, I guess, than anything else. And so the, the, the balance sheets to me were very clean, the way that all of this works. And I kind of got into this mode of thinking from all of this from a really a first principles perspective that I need to understand how the machinery works. And if I understand how the machinery works, then I can understand how the flow of fund will work through the economy and impact all of this stuff. And quantitative easing is a fascinating one because a lot of people just assume that this is some sort of naturally inflationary money printing type of, of policy. And when you actually look at the nuts and bolts of it, it really depends on a whole slew of other factors. And so quantitative easing at its most basic form is the Federal Reserve, which is the Fed's just a big, big bank. They're just the biggest bank in the whole world. They expand their balance sheet. So they create reserves. And what they do is they purchase an asset from either a bank or a non-bank with a bank as the intermediary. And in either case, what they're essentially doing is they are creating what is effectively new money. So when a non-bank, let's say I sell $100 of treasury bonds to a bank who on-sells it to the Federal Reserve, the Fed creates a reserve for the bank and the bank creates a deposit for me. And so what I've effectively done in the private sector is I've offloaded my treasury bond to the Fed through the bank and I've taken on a deposit, okay? And at the private sector level balance sheet, this is just a, it's a clean asset swap. I have, the way that I like to describe it is it's a lot like taking a savings account and swapping it for a checking account. And so at my balance sheet level, nothing's really changed. My net worth hasn't changed. Um, actually, my income has gone down because now I hold a lower yielding instrument. And the Fed has taken this treasury bond and they've basically stuffed it in a hole because that's the, this is the big thing I think people miss is that a lot of the times when balance sheets expand. So for instance, when a corporation expands their balance sheet, let's say to borrow uh, money from the household sector, the, the corporation is in the private sector. So their balance sheet expands, they have more purchasing power and I've given money up, but now I have a, I have a, what is a essentially a savings bond of some sort. And so my net worth hasn't decreased or anything. I haven't dissaved money or anything. In theory, I mean, I could go out and borrow more money or just as much money as I could have before. My credit hasn't changed. But what's different about when the Fed does it, the Fed takes it out of the economy. And this is the thing that a lot of people miss with QE is that while they've printed a reserve deposit, they've effectively unprinted the treasury bond. And so all of the dynamics of how that deposit impacts the economy in the long run depend on a whole slew of other factors. Like what is the U S treasury doing? Is the U S treasury spending more money or, you know, what are the, the portfolio balancing impacts? That's been one of the big debates over the years is does this stuff impact stock prices and things like that? Does it impact the bond prices? Cause it's, if it's impacting asset values, then theoretically this could be inflationary not just for asset prices, but for consumer goods as well. So it, 
it's easy to simplify this policy and just say, oh, the Fed is printing money. That's going to cause inflation. And it's, it's a lot more complex than that. It's a lot more nuanced than that. But that's kind of the simple overview of, of what QE does. When you look at the entirety of the response to 2008, I mean, obviously people have very strong opinions one way or the other about what the Fed did. What do you what do you think of it? I mean, what do you think are the positives and the negatives of what they did in 2008 and what was effective and what was maybe less effective? Well, here's the thing. The Fed is a bank for banks. And before all else, their main goal is to make sure that the banking system works. And people don't see this every day, but the the Fed is really just a big clearinghouse. They clear payments between banks. And that's what the whole reserve system is. So every day we kind of take it for granted how well the interbank system works, but that's what the Fed does. They make sure that the banking system keeps running smoothly basically every single day. And during these periods of crisis, these things just get, they get much more exacerbated and the Fed has to be much more involved to make sure that a financial panic doesn't turn into a real economic crisis because that's what used to happen back in the, the late 1800s, the early 1900s. You'd get a, a pretty garden variety banking panic where bankers would start you know, getting scared of one another. They'd stop settling interbank payments. So Citibank would look at JP Morgan and say, you know, I'm not going to accept your payment because I don't trust your balance sheet. And that would impact everyone in the whole economy. And the Fed kind of came in and said, okay, we're not going to let that happen anymore. Or we're going to make sure that if, if the banks are healthy, we're going to make sure payment's clear. And 2008 was actually a, a great example of how effective they were able to do that. Because this, although it did filter into the real economy, it didn't filter into the real economy in a way that, say, like 1907 did or, or even the, the Great Depression. So their policy response in the banking system was superb in that they helped solidify the banking system itself. My criticisms of the, the government response in 2008 primarily had to do with the fact that they took care of the banks and they kind of left everybody else out to dry. And so you had this big, um, I think, disconnect between the way that the stimulus helped the people that in a lot of ways caused the crisis and it didn't help the people that, you know, were just sort of in the, in the mainstream economy for the most part. And that just, you know, in addition to being unfair, it was a very ineffective way to implement the policy because it just didn't stimulate the economy in the, the effective way. I always said 2008, the housing crisis was a consumer credit crisis. Consumers needed their balance sheets bolstered. And we, we did a little bit of that. The, you know, the various treasury programs did some of that, but not to the degree that we helped the banking system. And so it was just disproportionately um, targeted at the banking system in sort of a, a, an inefficient way, I guess I would say. I, I may already know your answer to this based on the previous answer, but obviously whenever the government does something and they see it as effective, you know, they have a tendency to just keep doing it over and over again. And in the wake of 2008, quantitative easing continued and, and continued for a long time. I'm wondering what your evaluation of that was. Was it, was it necessary? Did it have any positive economic impact? If you could just talk about sort of the pros and cons of that continuing in the wake of 2008. I mean, it, it's, it was effective in the sense that it helped shore up the banking system. I mean, I've always, I wrote a piece back in 2009 or 2010, basically saying that QE was effectively, it was a bank bailout of sorts. And so QE helped the banking system a lot more than it helped anybody else. And I, I think that the initial iteration of QE1 had a big, big impact because it helped stabilize the markets. It helped stabilize the banking system. And I think there were significantly diminishing returns with all of the future iterations of it. But the, the problem is that the, to a large degree, the Fed only has so many tools and their main tool is to work through the banking system. And so when the, when the Congress is dysfunctional, which it effectively has been for you know 10 plus years, I think the Fed being independent, when they see an economy that needs help, they're trying to do something. And QE has just sort of become in a zero interest rate environment. It's become their go-to policy. And so I don't think it's been that effective. I think that the, I mean, the low rate of inflation, if anything, I think is evidence that 
it hasn't been effective because the one of the main goals of QE would be to get consumer spending to increase and to essentially get inflation to rise to some degree. And the fact that inflation continues to fall, I think is to some degree proof that maybe the Fed isn't quite as powerful as a lot of people tend to think it is. I'm wondering about what you think about the impact on the market. I mean, you, you, see, you seem pretty skeptical about the impact of QE on the economy, but a lot of people have said there's this popular narrative that the Fed has caused this huge bull market. You know, by suppressing rates, they've moved people up the risk curve, they've driven the stock market up. They've also caused this whole growth over value thing, you know, the long duration growth, you know, performing worse. Uh, sorry, better than the short duration value. What do you think about all of that? Do you, do you think people also overstate the Fed's impact on the market? Well, uh, I mean, coming out of 2008, I think it was, it was certainly a lot more difficult, I think, to prove that narrative just because the, the state of corporate America was actually pretty robust coming out of the financial crisis. There were sectors that were incredibly fragile, but for the most part, I mean, the, the sectors outside of housing were pretty strong. And so you had real funda fundamental underlying reasons for the, the rally in the stock market. You had, you know, surging corporate profits and surging um, earnings per share. And so I, I think that, you know, the problem with that narrative oftentimes is that the implication is that there's no underlying fundamental reason for all of this. And I just don't think the evidence supported that in from the 2008 2020 bull market. Um, the the current response is different. Um, I think what people have missed is that although the Fed's response was big, the Treasury's response has been colossal. I mean, we've I can't even keep track of the numbers anymore. And we throw around these numbers. Now we're talking about the new stimulus package. You know, we're, we're basically talking about roughly a trillion dollars, like it's nothing. And that's what the entire treasury response was in 2008. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that after having had this huge $4 trillion stimulus earlier in the year, we're talking about this trillion dollar stimulus now as if it's kind of something small when that literally was the, it was, this is going to be larger than the response from the financial crisis. So why is that important? It's, it's important to differentiate from the treasury versus the fed because the treasury, if you assume that for instance, household savings rates remain flat, or let's say they mean revert to where they were before. Well, all of the spending from the, the government, where does it go to? It ends up going to corporations. And so it goes to the bottom line of these corporations. And so again, in a weird way, all of the stimulus that's occurred in the last few months has another real fundamental underlying reason or rationale. And you're beginning to see this as the data unfolds, we're gonna see record corporate profits in the next year, probably every quarter. Um, and you're gonna see increasing earnings per share. And so there's, there's more logic to this than I think people imply when they they look at the fed as this money printing entity when in reality i think it's probably safer to say that the treasury is the money printing entity you i think answered some of my next question with that response but um obviously policymakers have been presented with you know an unprecedented challenge here i mean the fed has basically been cutting rates they've been in here to keep the markets sort of the money flowing um they've moved into buying bond ETFs. So those are all the actions they've done. And then like you just pointed out, there's been this massive fiscal stimulus between things like the PPP program, the enhanced unemployment, direct checks to individuals and, you know, small business support and all that other stuff. So I'm just wondering in your mind, you know, when you look at at least the fiscal part of it so far, I mean, how do you evaluate it? Has it, you know, has it been a good has, has it been effective in your, in your view, or maybe could they have done more or what's your view? Yeah. I, you know, this is one of those things where I thought that the pandemic was just so unusual. It was to me, this was more like a natural disaster than, you know, I think that the, one of the keys to understanding what has happened in the last year has been being able to differentiate from the fact that your typical business cycle recession occurs mainly because of a boom. 
a, you have a NASDAQ boom that causes a bust. You have a housing boom that causes a bust. You have some sort of irrational environment that leads to a boom that eventually just deflates naturally. And you get a recession during that. This, there were, I guess, boomlets around the economy, but there wasn't anything really crazy irrational about what was going on. And so this to me, it wasn't a situation where you had a boom causing a bust where we, to some degree, recessions are, are good to some degree in that they clear out some of the excesses and, you know, they help to, to create a more stable long-term environment. This was different because it was more like a natural disaster. It was an environment where nobody caused the virus to happen. Um, and so to me, the policy response was warranted because we basically have been trying to build a bridge to this point where we can get past this health crisis and kind of get back to the economy that we had in 2019. So, you know, I was a pretty vocal proponent early on of, yeah, we need to throw throw everything you can at this. And there's been there's been problems, um, but this is a, an environment where I think perfect is the enemy of the good. And you you were going to have problems with the way that this was rolled out inevitably because it was rolled out so quickly. We needed such a huge targeted response that we kind of, we slung a lot of mud at the wall and some of it, you know, didn't stick. I was pretty critical of buying like high yield bond ETFs and things like that. I didn't like, you know, specific parts of the Fed's policies, but for the, for the most part, I think that the policy response has been, certainly better than if we had done nothing where you could have had just a pandemic wreck the economy for years, perhaps, you know, decades for, for what reason, just because we, we had this belief that we, we needed to let this thing naturally, you know, destroy the economy for some reason that just didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I think the policy response has been more good than bad for sure. And I think that the, you know, the fact that the economy is even as robust as it is, as weird as this economy is, I think it goes to show that the policy response has been more good than bad for certain. As you, as you look at the individual things, I'm just thinking as, as we were about to have probably a new stimulus bill here. And as, as we look at the things they did, you know, the fiscal stimulus they did before, they obviously did PPP loans and they tried to get the money to people through companies. They did extended unemployment. They did direct checks to individuals. Do you think any of those, as they look at what they're going to do now, are any of those better than other ones in terms of stimulating the economy or in terms of getting money to the people that need it? Do you have any view on which approach maybe they should be taking going forward? I mean, it's... It's so hard to analyze exactly what the the most beneficial programs are. I mean, the PPP obviously has had a lot of problems along the way. There's been, um, I mean, I personally know a lot of people who took PPP loans who now their businesses are better than they've ever been. Um, and so there's, we know a lot more about this. And I think that there's certainly, there's certainly things they should be doing with a lot of these policies that should be, I think, narrowing the the way they're targeted at certain people, people who really need this stuff. And we know now, we have enough evidence now that we know that the industries, the sectors, and the types of households that are really being impacted the worst by this. And I think they should at this point be doing a better job of targeting it. But I I generally do like the, the broad um, scope of what they're doing. They're slinging a lot of money at states. They're slinging a lot of money at healthcare specifically. They're slinging a lot of money at small businesses and they're, and they're targeting, hopefully they'll end up targeting a lot of, of money at households directly, um, through checks and things like that again. So I like the kind of broad, um, scope of the way they're doing it. And, but I think there's definitely ways they could refine a lot of this so that the, you know, for instance, the PPP loans don't go to, you know, real estate businesses that now that we know are just absolutely booming. I want to ask you about this idea of upside down markets. I don't know. Did you get a chance to read Jesse Livermore's piece about this? I did. Yeah. 
And I'm wondering, you know, it's it's always to some extent been true because obviously when you get bad economic news, the Fed, the Fed would cut rates and, you know, that could be seen as, as a positive for the market. But it seems like now that we've unleashed the bazooka of fiscal policy, it seems like this may be more true than ever that, you know, bad ends up being good in terms of the stock market. And I, I wonder what your reaction to that is. If you think that's sort of the way it's going to be going forward, where, you know, as things get bad, you're just going to get more and more stimulus and, and it's going to be a positive for the markets. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I don't love the idea of looking at the macro economy and making some sort of direct connection to what the stock market does. The stock market is just, especially the S&P 500, the S&P 500 is 500 of the biggest, most successful companies in the world. I mean, they're, they're probably going to do pretty well, regardless of what's happening to the rest of us. And there's obviously some connection between the two. But in in a lot of ways, corporate America can do well when the rest of the economy is not doing that well. In fact, in an environment where you kind of have, and we saw this, especially in the last year, you've had a lot of inequality, not just at the household level, you've had a lot of inequality at the corporate level. And I think that the stock market has been a really sort of highlighted point of that in that the, I think if you looked at broader corporate America, you took a real broad snapshot of corporate America, it would look significantly worse than the S&P 500 does, for instance, because you'd have to include all of these restaurants and all of these retail businesses that have just been decimated. I mean, businesses that are literally still down 80% year over year. And so there's been a lot of inequality in the way that the, the policies have impacted all of this and the way that COVID has impacted all, all of this. And I think that the, the hard thing to analyze is differentiating those segments of corporate America where things have been really good and probably will continue to be really good no matter what versus the way that they have almost this, this big divide through inequality versus other corporations or, or small businesses primarily. When we um, think about and talk about sort of the fiscal response and I guess what it means sort of going forward, one of the concepts that kind of comes up a lot is this modern monetary theory or MMT um, because its validity, yeah. you know, will probably tell us a lot about what happens going forward. Many of our listeners are individual investors and MMT is sort of hard to get their heads around. Um, you know, unless you really have like a, a strong economic background or understand the theory. So just what is the, what is the simplest way you could explain um, MMT to our listeners? So there's a lot going on in MMT and it will, a lot of people who will first encounter it will, their head will kind of explode because it's, it's counterintuitive in a lot of ways. I've been a proponent of aspects of it and a critic of, of bigger aspects of it. Cause I think they, I think they play some word games with, with aspects of things, but the, the general theory is that the, it's a macro theory that basically states that the, the government is the monopoly supplier of the real money in the economy, mainly currency. So things like reserves and, um, the treasury bonds, bills, notes, and, um, and cash itself, they would argue that those are kind of the, the top of the, the hierarchy in terms of the most important forms of money. And the, the MMT people essentially argue that when a state government creates its own currency, you have a national currency in essence, they argue that this causes all sorts of problems for the, the rest of the economy, that this causes unemployment, and it causes a shortage, a natural shortage of the, the safest type of currency, the safe, safest type of money. Um, so you know, anyone who's read my work will know that anyone can create money. Any, I could go to the bank right now. I could spend on my credit card. It, the bank will literally expand its balance sheet and create money for me. Anyone can create money. The argument from the MMT people is that the government creates the very safest type of money and causes all sorts of problems. But more importantly, what they argue is that the government 
doesn't need to do a lot of the things that the rest of us need to do. They don't need to obtain, for instance, revenue to be able to spend. And um, so bond issuance and things like that is really unnecessary, which, you know, is kind of a, it's kind of a technicality in my opinion, in that the, the government, sure, the government could print money, but the government still needs an income. The government still needs resources to be produced from the private sector to to give its currency value. And so there's some word games going on, but the the big kicker from the MMT people is that they essentially, or they effectively argue that the government can control the, the rate of inflation. They can, the government, they would argue is self-financing in the sense that their spending will create a sufficient multiplier effect that it need not be inflationary. And so that's, extremely theoretical in the sense that they 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 can't prove it because it's this has essentially never been really tried or 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 empirically proven and so if you believe in MMT your tendency will be to argue that not only does the government need to issue currency and deficit spend in essence but that it's essentially a good thing outside of a high inflation environment and so that's really the the kicker with them is they would argue that rather than than being able to obtain money being the constraint for a government, they would argue that the the true constraint for a government is inflation, um, which again I would say is kind of they're kind of just playing word games because governments go bankrupt through their foreign exchange rate basically they go they go bankrupt through their their rate of inflation. Um, they don't, they don't run out of money, of course. I mean, an entity with a printing press doesn't run out of, uh, of money to be able to print, but they can run out of people that believe in that currency. And when they do, you'll see it in the real exchange rate. So but for an MMT would then argue that really what we have to monitor here, as, as we're doing all the stimulus, as we might move to more of an MMT world going forward, what we really need to worry about is just inflation. And as long as inflation doesn't get out of control, would they argue we can just keep doing this stuff? Is, is that sort of the theory? Pretty much, yeah. They would they would say it's it's not just um, it's not just beneficial. It's necessary. I think they would say that the real goal of MMT, and I always tell people this: that deficit spending, big deficit programs, are not MMT. There's nothing. There's actually nothing all that new about big deficit programs. I mean, we ran we ran bigger deficits in World War II than we have right now as a percentage of GDP. So. You know, there's nothing new about running big deficits or even, you know, big government spending programs. The thing that's really unique about MMT is that MMT specifically says that the government causes unemployment and that they're the only ones that can create full employment. And so MMT's big bazooka is a job guarantee program. They would basically offer, they would have the federal government offer a job to anyone who wants it, thereby creating full employment. And this has never really been done in any developed economy in any great magnitude. And they argue that that program would also be able to control inflation in various ways. And they can't prove that. It's just, it's a totally unfounded, you know, unsupported claim that I'm extremely skeptical of, um, just because, especially because there's no evidence to support it, but just, um, I think from a common sense perspective, the idea that you can you can give everybody a job and not have any excess inflation to me, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, so it depends on so many other factors. You depend on so many such a productive underlying private sector that um, sure maybe this would work in the United States and a few other really big productive economies like Japan and places like that, but. Can you apply this in a broad scope? And like, I'd love to see the Italians try to try some, something like MMT. It would, I'd be willing to bet it would blow up their economy. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, this whole thing about inflation. So it seems like if inflation is going to be an issue with MMT, it, it seems like the Fed may have less tools to deal with it 
than they do with these deflationary crises. Obviously, with this deflationary crisis we just went through, it, the government showed it has a lot of tools and it, and it can deal with something like this. I'm wondering what do you think their toolkit is if inflation starts to rise? I mean, are, are they going to be able to deal with that? Um, will, will they see it coming fast enough and will they have the tools to be able to deal with it? Or is it something that could become a major problem in the future? Yeah, well, I've argued that so COVID is super unusual just because this is such a a sort of short-term shock to the economy that a lot of what's happening is creating really unusual trends in specific parts of the economy that the stimulus just inevitably is going to create inflation in certain areas. Because, um, for instance, when you know I periodically sort of jokingly post the price of lumber, I'll go to Home Depot and I've you know, I've just tracked the price of a two by four for the last two years because I've been two by fours have been in my face every day for the last two years. So I know the price of a two by four and I've known the price of a two by four for for two years. And the thing that was crazy about COVID was that COVID killed the lumber supply chain back in early March and April. And but you had this huge stimulus that in a lot of ways benefited the the real estate market. And so you had this huge surge in lumber prices because you had this really unusual impact of, well, the a lot of the mills were shut down, especially up in Canada. And so you had these really unique price problems in certain sectors of the economy that I think for the next for the next 12 to 24 months, are going to continue to sort of be apparent across certain sectors of the economy. I mean, the the price of a two by four as of last week is still up like 50%, despite the fact that lumber prices, wholesale lumber prices have actually collapsed from where they were just a few months ago. But Home Depot has so much pricing power that they, they jammed up their prices. The prices were up like 120% at one point. Price of a two by four here in California went from like three bucks in March up to like six dollars and eighty cents in July, and I think it's something like like four dollars and fifty cents right now. So it's still up a lot, but they have so much pricing power that because there's so much demand that they're not dropping their prices yet. So you know, will it kind of unfold over the course of the next few years in a way where prices you know revert back to where they were? Um, I don't know. I guess that depends on a lot of the factors that influence the economy going forward. But I don't, you know, I think that this, this stimulus was inflationary because of that. So it was, I wouldn't be shocked if in 2021, 2022, you have rates of inflation that are higher than they were in 2019. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Fed is actually, you know, jawboning about raising rates by that point, because the economy will have mostly return to normal, you know, assuming the vaccine works and everything. But you'll still have a lot of these supply chain disruptions that caused, you know, at least one-off price problems. And that'll filter through the rest of the economy to cause higher prices overall. But is this like a 1970s or uh, an inflation, a hyperinflation type environment? No, I, you know, I would be shocked if you got, you know, even even four or five percent inflation, I think, would be shocking to me just because you have so many huge macro trends that are putting a lot of pressure on prices and mainly the fact that you have things like massive inequality. You have actually abundance of commodities and oil. The 70s were really an, an oil price issue and a scarcity problem in uh, in oil. The the 70s were a huge era of credit expansion. And then the probably the biggie is, or the two biggies are, are the deflationary tech trends that we're seeing just because technology has become so much more impactful across all of the economy. And then the, big, the biggest one is the demographic trends. The demographics in base, basically all of the developed world are, if not deflationary, they're they're disinflationary, meaning that they're gonna they're putting pressure on the rate of inflation, so that you're seeing lower and lower rates of inflation. Just because, from a really basic economic perspective, you just don't have enough demand in the economy because we don't 
we don't make as many people as we used to. It seems like I just want to ask one more question on inflation. It seems like the economics profession probably didn't have as much of a grasp on what causes inflation as they thought. Um, you know, looking at a lot of things that have happened in the past decade that maybe should have caused inflation and didn't. I'm wondering how much do you think we understand about what actually causes inflation and how much do you think we just don't know? So little. I, it's it's actually it's one of the scariest things that I've kind of concluded about not just the whole economic profession, but I'm managing portfolios more broadly because I mean, all of this impacts everything that, that we do for a living because it, I mean, the rate of inflation, I would argue if, if there was one data point that I could know going forward, it would be the rate of inflation. And then I could, I, you, cause you, you can predict a lot of things based on what the future rate of inflation is going to be. And it's scary to look at, for instance, the mainstream econ profession, to a large degree, they basically would argue pre-financial crisis that the Federal Reserve dictates the future rate of inflation to a large degree, um, that either through money printing policies or the, you know, the monetary base, how, how much how much M1, which is the, basically the monetary base, expands in any period that will filter through to the real economy at some point. And so in the long run, most of mainstream economists would argue that the Fed has a pretty, a pretty tight control over the rate of inflation. And I think the, the crazy thing coming out of the financial crisis is that the Fed you know, unloaded so many bazookas at the economy and, you know, we have 1% inflation now. I mean, that's, it's crazy. So to me, it just, it, I think it, it's clear that inflation is a lot more complex than anyone assumes. And I think it's, honestly, I think it's just super unique to each individual economy. And so, you know, even in today's environment where inflation is globally pretty low, you still have economies where inflation is a nightmare. I mean, places like Venezuela and Argentina, and you know, you have these sort of unique environments where inflation is still really problematic. And so it's unique to each environment. It's unique to each economy. And yeah, the scary thing about inflation is that, um, you know, that because we don't know what causes it, I don't know if we have really a great solution for controlling it once it really does start to get out of out of hand. I wanted to um, ask you about this uh, growth versus value stock sort of narrative, which it's not really a narrative because growth stocks have pretty much killed value stocks for the past 10 years. We run we run a lot of uh, systematic value strategies and um, we've been waiting a long time for the turn recently it's actually we've seen um some pretty strong performance out of um some of the value models we run but i think sort of what some people are arguing is that you know fiscal policy or a more dominant fiscal policy over monetary policy um might be sort of the turning point for uh value do you have any sort of thoughts on that do you think that's uh uh an idea that has some merit yeah, I, I've said this on a few recent podcasts or I was saying it earlier in the year that I think that, you know, again, kind of going back to the rate of inflation, it, it makes sense that in a period of very low inflation, what happens essentially is that corporate balance sheets become very predictable. And so it may be the future with a lot more predictability than they do when inflation is high. And that's really the kicker with inflation is that Inflation is just a huge amount of uncertainty about what's going on in the future. And you see that reflected in the way that it impacts the price of everything. And I think that, that that's as much true in the real economy as it is in the stock market. And I think that the thing about value companies is that typically, you know, I would argue that value firms are typically, they're a safer type of company in general. And from a balance sheet perspective and the growth companies firms are typically, they're a safer type of company in general. And from a balance sheet perspective and the growth companies benefit from a low inflation environment, just because the predictability of the balance sheet 
is enhanced going forward. But if inflation increases, the predictability of that balance sheet, it becomes a lot more uncertain. And so value stocks on a relative basis just become more attractive because their balance sheets are so much more predictable. They earn a, they deserve a higher multiple in essence because their, their balance sheets are, are a lot safer and easier to, to predict going out. So I think if we, if we have an environment in the next, you know, two, three years where inflation is running, you know, above at least the recent trend, I wouldn't be at all shocked to see that value continues to outperform. But again, it's, um, there's a lot of really long-term trends that are suppressing inflation. So, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how comfortable I would be, you know, with the idea that we've seen sort of a secular change in the trend. Um, it just, if you're, I mean, obviously I'm oversimplifying just going based on inflation, but, you know, just looking at the, the likely outcome of inflation, I wouldn't be shocked we get a, you know, a little surge here in the next 18 months and then things kind of start to look, you know, kind of tepid again and you continue to have this, this lower for longer rate of inflation in the long term because of all the, the big macro trend. Not good for value. <laughs> or maybe good for the next 12 months. Who knows? I know it's a tough one to answer. You know, it's funny. I've never, you sort of like uh, have woken me up to this idea that like, it, you know, higher inflation equals um, higher uncertainty. I've never really thought of inflation that way, but this conversation has sort of brought that to the surface for me. So that's, um, that's very interesting. So thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, look at the way that um, COVID, you know, kind of rolled through the economy. I mean, I'll never forget walking into, I walked into a Trader Joe's in, I don't know, back in probably late March or early April. And there was a low key panic buying going on because there was so much uncertainty and, you know, the, the way that Trader Joe's just much have had, they must have had so much pricing power in that environment that the uncertainty creates a lot of pricing power for the corporations. And so, you know, a lot of that is just the, the way that, you know, the uniqueness of this environment. But I think that inflation more generally does, it does something similar. It causes a run on the currency to some degree due to a certain amount of uncertainty in the broader economy. Wrapping it up, um, we're quantitative investors here. So we try to automate almost everything we do in terms of building portfolios and our investment strategies. And I'm sure this is probably never going to happen, but it seems like government policy would be an interesting area to try to introduce some automation. So like, for example, like on the, on the Fed side, you know, you've talked in other interviews about, you know, the potential of tying the Fed funds rate um, automatically to inflation. And it seems like you could have other sort of automatic stabilizers in there on the fiscal policy side. Do you any, do you, you know, do you sort of see any potential for automation in any of those areas? Yeah. I mean, I, I do wish that we had more of a, especially with interest rates, it seems like there's just, there's a huge amount of discretion that goes into the way that we seem to sort of stick our fingers in the air and try to determine, um, you know, what is the, what is the right rate of inflation? And I think that, I mean, my view basically is that the, the government could, for instance, peg the, the overnight rate at something pretty close to what the rate of inflation currently is. Um, and just automate it based on that. It's just a purely data driven, the number changes based on the way the data changes. And that way you're providing, at least you're providing savers with like a real, um, a real return. And that way it's at least somewhat tied to a more systematic, um, data driven approach that correlates with what the real economy is doing. Fiscal policy is. I mean, in a lot of ways, we do automate things in that the, a lot of automatic stabilizers are, are automated in the sense that they, you know, when the, for instance, I mean, unemployment benefits, they increase automatically when we go into a recession because people, people apply for more. So things like that are at least somewhat automated. Um, 
I don't know. I think, God, coming out of this, it's all, the political situation is all such a mess in my view. And there's so many conflicts of interest that the idea that we could somehow get politicians to stop promising free money to people is, it's just not going to happen because it's against their best interests. You know, we've seen this with, I feel like every day now, every politician who's running for office is basically just trying to figure out the most clever way to give free money to people, whether it's, you know, canceling student loans or, you know, canceling billionaires or whatever it is that, you know, we're going to somehow give free money to people that they seem to have mastered the narrative of, of, of trying to do that. And so are we ever going to automate fiscal policy to a broad extent? I really, I really doubt it. Well, listen, this is uh, this has been great, Colin. Thank you for you know spending so much time with us. If people want to learn more about you, your firm, um, any project like your grill project you're working on, <laughs> where should they go to find out more? Um, so yeah, I write at Pragmatic Capitalism, which is uh, it's pragcap.com, P-R-A-G-C-A-P.com. Um, I wrote a book by the same um, name about six years ago. It kind of actually it covers a lot of the the general topics that we kind of discussed today, just in a more um, a more in depth, boring way. So. Um, those are probably two good places to start. I actually have a, there's an educational page on my corporate website, which is orcamgroup.com, O-R-C-A-M group.com. It's under the education tab and it kind of, I kind of just listed all the, the links. I mean, hundreds of different things, papers and um, different articles that people have written that I found really useful over the course of the last 10, 15 years, trying to digest all of this and trying to, especially understanding things from kind of a first principles perspective that I think that that's something that people might find really helpful. It's also, I also have it pinned on my Twitter page, which is just Cullen Roach. Um, so you can find it there also. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for doing this. This is great. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was good. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.